Welcome to this, the ninth video discussion hosted by Palestine Deep Dive. Uh, this time we're delighted to be joined from Doha in Qatar by our special guest, Marwan Bishara. It's great to see him. Uh, Marwan is Al Jazeera's English senior political analyst, and he's the author of Israel Palestine, Peace or Apartheid, and the Invisible Arab, The Promise and Perils of Arab Revolutions. His writing has appeared, as probably many of you have seen, in the New York Times, Washington Post, Newsweek, The Guardian, Le Monde, and The Nation, amongst many other international media outlets. He was previously a lecturer in international relations at the American University of Paris, and as a fellow at the École des Hautes Etudes en Sciences Sociales. Appalling French uh, accent there. I apologize for that, Marwan, uh, but there we are. I'm Mark Seddon. And I've worked for the UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon and President of the UN General Assembly, Maria Fernanda Espinosa, last year. But um, I used to work with Marwan some time ago at Al Jazeera <coughs> at the very beginning and, uh, and thoroughly enjoyed doing so. So it's a real pleasure um, for me in particular, actually, to, to, to see Marwan again after quite some time. And we're all delighted here at Palestine Deep Dive that he's taken time out to speak with us today. Um, so. Without ado, Marwan, thanks very much indeed for joining us today. Uh, you know, some people, they say that we live in interesting times, but in, what they really mean is that we live in quite dangerous, unpredictable times. Uh, and you know, the pandemic is massively reshaping the global political and economic um, economy. Uh, but at the same time, you look at the domestic media, wherever we are, whether, whether you're in Britain, whether you're in France, whether you're in South Africa, Nigeria, or where you are in Qatar, there's very much a focus on the domestic. And suddenly, international news, international developments, they, get, they can get pushed aside. And so, you know, the big story at the moment, a huge story for what it, for, for what it could mean for the Middle East and the future of Palestine, is this planned annexation? We know that uh, yesterday uh, Netanyahu and Gantz met to discuss the planned annexation. And the question really, I would like to start with, uh, with you, Marwan, is to ask you this. Is this a certainty, this annexation plan? Well, let's just put it this way. Uh, it's certainly a question of uh, uh, when, not if. It's really a question of time or timing. Uh, what is the best timing? Is it before or after the uh, Republican convention uh, in the United States? Is it before or after uh, the coalition government can suck more uh, compromise out of all those people uh, and leaders who are groveling and begging the Netanyahu government uh, not to go through with the annexation in return for acceptance of the illegal settlements or the Israeli occupation and so on and so forth. So clearly, this move by uh, the Trump-Netanyahu axes uh, have given uh, Israel uh, a certain advantage. And now it is riding high. It's in a position to, uh, to negotiate over it or to negotiate over the extent to which uh, this annexation uh, will be. Now, my guess, to make a long story short, is that uh, the consensus in this uh, ruling coalition in Israel between Netanyahu and Gantz would probably go along the, uh, the following lines. Uh, 
Netanyahu would like to see at minimum the three main settlement blocks, uh, which is around Ariel in the north, Maalia Adumim uh, in the middle, and Guch Sion in the south. And Gantz would like to see the annexation of the areas adjacent to the Jordan River. And I think this sort of a consensus, this sort of a compromise, if you will, between the two branches of the Israeli government will probably be the thing that Israel will uh, do first. Again, whether it will do it as of July or August or later this year, but I think this is where they're heading. And why is this important? Well, for two reasons. One, the settlement blocks uh, contain most of the settlers. So I think it will be a way for Netanyahu to please and pander to his base and to actually take control of vast uh, areas of Palestinian land that, uh, you know, uh, host, if you will, uh, Jewish settlers. I think for Gantz, uh, the takeover of the Jordan River uh, adjacent areas mean that uh, Israel will have full control over the borders, not only of Israel, but also of future Palestinian entity, whatever this Palestine thing is going to be. Meaning, once you control the Jordan River, the West Bank and East Jerusalem would no longer have international borders. Hence, any notion of an independent Palestinian state would be passé, uh, would basically be un undoable. So I think between Gantz wanting to control the Jordan River in order to guarantee Israel's security on the, on the, on the eastern border, and Netanyahu uh, uh, annexing the settlement blocks, uh, this will be for them a win-win situation and it'll be a way to go forward. Well, see, Marwan, I mean, none of these things kind of happened by accident or, you know, suddenly. I mean, and I, I, I noticed that from one of your recent uh, pieces that you talked about, well, you talk about this as the annexation government. I mean, it's, it's come to be that. It's the annexation government. And you, you, you mentioned in particular the events that were happening um, between January and February the, uh, this year. The, these, were, this, these were crucial months. Jan just that was a crucial month, sorry, January and February. What was really happening behind the scenes? And can you give us some idea of what was happening perhaps in Washington and also in Jerusalem? Well, there's definitely a, a, a bit of a story, if you will, behind all of this that happened really over the last four or five months. Following uh, uh, Trump's uh, uh, decision to make his uh, so-called peace plan uh, uh, public, he invited both Prime Minister Netanyahu and uh, the opposition leader, uh, Benjamin Gantz. The two Bennies, as it were, showed up in Washington. Now, it was clear that the, the close relations between Netanyahu and Trump, between Netanyahu and the Trump family, between Netanyahu and the Trump uh, entourage, will trump the presence of Gantz in Washington. I think Gantz, not exactly the most brilliant of leaders, was politically intimidated uh, by the close relations between Trump uh, uh, and Netanyahu. And he basically acquiesced, uh, knowing all too well, one, that he is no political, uh, uh, you know, experienced person. Two, that without the U.S. blessings, nothing could actually happen in or around Israel in terms of serious decision making when it comes to Palestine and the region. And hence, 
Gantz accepted the de facto uh, American wish that there will be a coalition government. Now, the coalition government, naturally, uh, would have involved these two main parties. Of course, a lot of Gantz's own partners left him because, let's all remember, that Gantz ran on the platform that says, we will never ever become partners of Netanyahu because Netanyahu is corrupt, because Netanyahu is inept, because Netanyahu has been indicted by the Attorney General in Israel. And until that trial is over, no sitting prime minister should be also sitting in a courtroom. But, once again, uh, Gantz uh, acquiesced to American pressures and they joined together. Now, I think they joined together on the basis of what I just mentioned to you, meaning that there could be some sort of a compromise on annexation. Now, let me put this in the most blunt of ways possible. The, the so-called deal of the century that the Americans have been working on for the last three years, in fact, sounds much better in the original Hebrew. The Israeli version is high on annexation, low on peace, and certainly bleak on bullshit. <laughs> in the sense that the Israelis know that all of this garnishing that uh, Trump's son-in-law put around this 80-page document with all this uh, you know, presentation, if you will, about the economics of peace and this and that, and the provisional Palestinian state somewhere, I don't know when, in, in eternity, that this is all humbug. That in the end of the day, what Israel really wants out of this thing is the capacity to annex uh, much of the West Bank, up to 30% of the West Bank, in order to control uh, the Palestinian destiny in that part of the world. Yes, you see, that you, you talked about the Trump deal of the century. I mean, of course, the, the former showbiz president, you know, who made his name on, uh, on reality TV, amongst other things, talks about deals of the century. Um, and usually people like to be associated with successful things like deals of the century, except that no one, apart from the United States administration and this, uh, as you call it, the Israeli annexation government, seem to support it. So really, in practical terms, does it really have any chance of, of any acceptance anywhere? Look, this is a very important question. And I think if I could reverse the question in a way, to put it in the following uh, phrasing. There isn't that much support for the plan anywhere, mm. but there isn't that much of an effective opposition to the plan anywhere either. And that's the problem. And that's what Trump and Netanyahu are betting on. What are they betting on? They're betting on a weak Europe preoccupied with its own Brexit and preoccupied with its own pandemic, with its own, uh, you know, house, house, uh, house cleaning, if you will. And an Arab world that is so divided that I think Trump understands and Netanyahu that this is the backyard of empire, as it were. And Arab leaders are so divided that each and every one of them need American support both to stay in power and, uh, you know, to gang up on the neighbor. So let's take here in the, in the Persian Gulf. The United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia need the United States. They need it 
for the war in Yemen. They need it against Iran. They need it to stay in power. They need it to dominate uh, within the Middle East. The same thing goes for Egypt uh, and so on and so forth. And those countries would sacrifice Palestine happily, happily, in return for American support for more immediate challenges for them, which is to remain in power, to win in Yemen, and to confront Iran, for example. So yes, the Arab masses are against the deal of the century. In fact, I would say Arab leaders are in their hearts of hearts against uh, the deal of the century. But when it comes to political will, when it comes to political momentum, when it comes to the capacity to influence American decisions or Israeli decisions, they have not. And that's mm -hmm. what we've seen in the last few days. We saw the Emiratis, for example, uh, as well as others, like say the Germans and the French and so on and so forth, basically begging the Israelis not to go through with the annexations. So much so, so much so, that uh, some of those, like the Emiratis and others, would actually propose normalizations of relations with the Israeli occupation, if only Israel does not go through with annexation, which, to be honest with you, the Palestinians don't want that kind of support or that kind of opposition to the deal of the century. I mean, it's interesting because, you know, we're obviously we, we can get onto this a little bit later, the uh, US presidential elections, but uh, looking at the United States itself and, uh, and looking at APAC, for instance, the main lobby group for uh, Israeli uh, interests in the United States, uh, even APAC isn't sold on this deal of the century. So what really, what, what benefit in any way does this bring Trump? Look, uh, just to uh, sort of uh, explain a bit of the opposition. The opposition is based on three factors. One, uh, that this will create backfire. We just addressed that. It, it will not really create that much backfire. We've seen what happened when the United States recognized the annexation of East Jerusalem. What happened? Not much. What happened when the United States recognized the annexation of the Syrian Golan Heights? Not much, right? Yeah. So this whole thing about the international backlash is really is not happening. And I think both Netanyahu and Trump understand that. Two, they speak about uh, the end of the two-state solution. <laughs> Netanyahu does not want a two-state solution. He never wanted, never agreed to it. When they talk about a, st a Palestinian state, he thinks Palestinian autonomy. When they start talking about the borders of the Palestinian state, Netanyahu thinks half a state on half of the West Bank at best. So he's not really convinced of all of that at all. He, he doesn't really prescribe to what Can they I what the, 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 what I was thinking is perhaps one of the reasons why APAC and some of these other organizations have got cold feet about all of this is because actually it does run a total coach and horses through this 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 figment of the two state solutions, which is quite useful in some respects to, to, to pretend to go along with. Because once you get into this territory of annexation, you are talking about a one state solution and it's a greater Israel. Um, and that then becomes very difficult. Uh, for Israel longer term, for all sorts of demographic and other reasons. The assumption being that Palestinians, uh, nearly the majority, could well be the majority in the Palestine uh, Israel, the original P Palestine territory of 1948, i.e. Greater Israel. Is that what people are worried about? 
Well, 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 let's just put it this way. Certainly Netanyahu is not worried about it, right? Uh, which, makes, which makes you think, why isn't he worried about that? Why does everyone, uh, every you know, hip, hypocrite in Washington, uh, tells Netanyahu, no, no, be careful, be careful, this is going to turn into apartheid. Uh, you cannot be Jewish and democratic and annex. Uh, this is not good for the future of Israel. But Netanyahu, what does he say? He, he smiles, he ignores them, and he thinks they are total, uh, you know, totally naive. Why? Why does he that, think that? And why does Trump insist on going through with it anyway? Well, to go back to your question of Trump, just quickly, I would say the following. Trump doesn't care what happened in Israel-Palestine. He never did. He doesn't even know and can't tell where Gaza or the Galilee is on the map. Mm. What he cares about is his, his power base. What he cares about is to be re-elected. To do that, he would like to get more Jewish vote. But unfortunately for him, most Jews in the United States, over 77% vote for the Democratic Party, the last election and the election before. What he's really more concerned with and what he's really pandering to are the Christian evangelicals who really want Israel to take over the entire Palestine because they believe this actually means the second coming of Christ and so on and so forth. We don't have to go into the theological details, but clearly his core base, the conservative evangelicals, cheer this sort of a thing. And that's why Trump is interested. Now, in, in as far as Netanyahu and the so-called one-state solution, look, Netanyahu uh, taps on a long history uh, in Palestine. And I'm going to give you this um, contrast that you probably, and I know you're very well informed, Mark, that you probably never heard before. Israel is going to do in the West Bank what it did in the Galilee. After 1947 partition plan, and you know that from the United Nations, the UN partition plan envisioned the Galilee as part of the Palestinian state. But when the war broke, Israel occupied the Galilee. The Galilee has 60% of the Palestinian citizens in Israel today and then. The West Bank has 60% of the Palestinians under occupation. What did Israel do? Israel built three main Jewish centers, one in, the north, one in the south of the Galilee, one in the middle, one in the north, just like it did later in the West Bank. It built new settlements. It, it, it Jewadized the Galilee, as it was called in, in Israel, in order to ensure that there is no Palestinian contiguity, there is no Palestinian majority, and there is no possibility for the Palestinians in the Galilee to secede in future times. That's what Netanyahu wants to do in the West Bank. He wants to make sure there is no Palestinian contiguity. There is no, Palest there is no possibility for a Palestinian state. And that there is no possibility for the refugees to return. Mm. Once he ensures all these three things, that he controls the borders and he has a Jewish majority, in certain areas, and he has full control over it with the military staying in the Palestinian territories, then he can negotiate with whoever the future Palestinian leader is on functional autonomy. And functional autonomy means we are not negotiating over autonomy over a certain geography. We're only negotiating over basically municip municipal authorities, meaning what do you do with sewerage and, and water and, and so on and so forth. And I think that's where Netanyahu is going. At best, once all of this is said and done, he will offer the Palestinian 
a very limited autonomy within a very limited part of the West Bank. And the end result will be two systems, one for affluent Jews, settlers, and one for uh, impoverished Palestinian periphery. We call that apartheid. Yes. Now, Marwan, on this, because, you know, these parallels have been drawn, um, and we've been talking about this, as you know, through this whole series. Uh, apartheid South Africa did very much the same. If you think about the trans guy, the cis guy, they call them, as you know, the Bantu star. Um, they were in denial of the fact that the, um, the, uh, the, Af the, the African majority uh, <laughs> remained in the country, whatever they did to borders and however they corralled people. So really, um, at the end of the day, I suppose what a lot of people are curious about is, is how, in, in the, if, you, if you look at the whole of, of current Israel, if you look at the West Bank, if you look at Gaza, if you look at the diaspora, the Palestinian diaspora, how do the demographics uh, stay, stack up? And what will they look like in, let's say, 10, 15 years? Can this so, kind of settler state like Israel survive if that is Netanyahu's policy? So, so, this, is, so this is what's important about, uh, about contrasts, is that contrasts and comparisons have uh, similarities and differences. So one of the important difference between Israel, Palestine, and, and South Africa is that there was a, a, an absolute majority of black, Afri black South Africans. While in Palestine, you could say in historic Palestine today, there's an equal number of Jews and Palestinians mm -hmm. inhabiting the so-called Holy Land, right? Between the sea and the Jordan River. Israel thinks that by sidelining Gaza, that, that, uh, that comprises about 2 million Palestinians, you're basically guaranteeing a Jewish majority between the Mediterranean and the Jordan River without the Gaza Strip. Once you do that, they think that they can co continue to control the Palestinian destiny and nudge and encourage the Palestinians to leave. They would like to see more and more Palestinians leave, you know, at their own will, if need be, or by giving them financial incentives to leave, or by simply maintaining the center-periphery relationship as they do in the Galilee, in the Triangle, and in the Negev. Meaning, yes, there are Palestinians, but you make sure that they are controlled through various mechanisms, economic, political, and security mechanisms. Now, are you asking me on the very, very long term? Well, let me just put it this way. I think the struggle towards a one-state solution is going to be more difficult, not less difficult, than the struggle towards two-state solutions. So if the Palestinians fail to attain a two-state solution, believe you me that the Israelis will be even more bullish, more resistance, more in opposition of a one-state solution. Because this whole myth of the Jewish state was based on the simple idea that we need to control our own destiny in this part of the world and so on and so forth. And that's why I tell you that, uh, 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 based on what I mentioned before, that, that while they say and while they warn Israel that you can no longer be uh, Jewish and democratic, there's a Palesti Palestinian simple response to that. Israel has never been Jewish and democratic. Because you cannot be democratic when you are Jewish, and you cannot be Jewish 
if you want to be democratic, when 26% of your population are not Jewish. It is impossible to do so. Netanyahu understands, I think, in, in, his, in his heart, that Israel is not Jewish and democratic. Israel controls the destiny of the Palestinian citizens today in Israel. Israel uh, Israeli Jews have privileges over Palestinian uh, citizens of the same country. And Israel controls those Palestinians through various mechanisms, although it allows them to elect members uh, to the Knesset, representatives of the Israeli parliament. But in the end of the day, the discrimination is clear, and Israel does control the destiny of the Palestinian citizens. It's not democratic, and it's not totally Jewish when more than a quarter of the population is not Jewish. They're hoping to take that model and copy it in the West Bank, meaning in the worst of cases, they will allow Palestinians to have some sort of an autonomy, and hence they will continue to control all of historic Palestine without much of its population. And I think that's what they're calculating. In my mind, and here, what I tell you, I might be hopeful on the long term, but I'm not optimistic on the short term, in the sense uh, that the struggle for, for, towards a one-state solution is going to be long, it's going to be hard, <clears throat> and its results are not assured at all because Israeli resistance to this sort of uh, equality, justice, and democracy for the Palestinians is not at all on their agenda. Yeah, I mean, I noticed from some of your writing that, I mean, you're, you're also, you have been quite critical too of the, of the Palestinian leadership. Um, and of course, there is a, a real problem if you've got uh, essentially um, administrations in the West Bank and Gaza, which are facing in quite different directions very often. And also, you know, there's the criticism of the West in the West Bank. The Fatah administration um, is kind of pretty sclerotic, ossified. It's kind of lost its lost its way. Uh, I mean, you can't wave your magic wand from Doha, but I mean, you must be very frustrated by the lack of uh, Palestinian unity and and how, how is there a prospect of things improving the palestine of the palestine finding a stronger single voice again Let, let's put it this way one uh, i agree with you that this is totally frustrating and totally unacceptable for people to be under occupation the way the palestinians are in this possession uh, of their own homes and land and, and towns and villages and so forth and not be able to unite so definitely it's on them and they need to get their act together. But to be fair, it's also not easy to judge from the outside about what happens when people live uh, under occupation for some 50 odd years, right? So in a sense, and, and we know that now for a fact, it's no longer a theory, it's a fact, that both Israel and the United States have worked diligently to separate and divide the Palestinians after the 2006 elections when Hamas won the majority of uh, the parliaments in the Palestinian National Assembly. When that happened, when, when the Hamas won the majority in the, in the legislation, the United States and Israel began the dividing technique between Hamas and Fatah, and I think the Palestinians fell for that. And now there's more and more incentive that if, if Fatah, if the Palestinian Authority wants to negotiate with, with Israel, if it wants any future in terms of dealings with Israel, it's going to have to separate from Hamas. And if Hamas wants to continue on the same path, it cannot really 
pander to a Palestinian authority that's basically trying to secure uh, Israel's uh, well-being uh, in the West Bank. So there is a problem. Now, I have a solution for this. And the solution goes on the following lines. Well, you know what? If you cannot unite, fine, don't unite. Because now Hamas is basically in control of the Gaza Strip and, and Fatah and the Palestinian Authority are in control uh, of the West Bank. And I think on the long term, the solution for the Palestinians is not going to be necessarily one strategy under one leadership. They could decide on one goal. They could decide on main guidelines. And I think they must be freedom, equality, and justice in their own homeland. And those everyone agreed to. But I think in terms of the means of struggle and the ways of struggle in various parts, I think every Palestinian and every person who supports the Palestinians should have the liberty to devise their own way, their own struggle towards freedom, justice, and equality. And I think for the Palestinians in Gaza, it took, could take one form. For the Palestinians in the West Bank, it could take another form. For the Palestinians in, in, in Israel itself, well, as I said, they make, more than 20, make up more than 20% of the population. The struggle could be totally different there as well. And for the Palestinian diaspora, uh, 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 last but not least. So I think the Palestinians could agree on the goal. They could agree on the guidelines. But for the time being, if they're not united, that should not stop them mm. from going forward and making sure that Israel does not continue with its plan to devour the rest of Palestine. Well, I mean, we, we can, again, we, we will come on to this very shortly of, of the US presidential election, what that could mean. But I, I noticed from the other week when the German foreign minister went to uh, meet Netanyahu, he didn't go uh, to uh, the West Bank, by the way, but he met with Netanyahu. He he reiterated the EU's position on uh, on the occupied territories, on the two-state solution. Uh, he read from the book on international law, but wasn't wasn't prepared to threaten anything. And 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 by that I mean sanctions where it hurts. Sanctions and the and the and you know that there's a real uh, issue now. Um, not just in Europe, but in North America and across the world, for those people who call for sanctions, who get marginalised very quickly politically. Um, unfortunately, this, the, 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 the anti-Semitism is, uh, is, is around, it is strong, uh, but it shouldn't be confused um, with uh, people who genuinely want to see uh, uh, fairness in Palestine and Israel. And yet people, it could be argued, are frightened now of putting pressure on the on their governments to take strong action when Israel breaks international law because somehow this has been this is seen as anti-semitic uh, how can we uh, and how can the Palestinians um, negotiate around this latest roadblock look there's nothing more cynical uh, than characterizing um, uh, opposition to Israeli occupation as anti-Semitic. I think it's hypocritical, it's nonsensical. And I think those who support um, uh, peaceful coexistence uh, in Israel-Palestine should not be deterred by such nonsense. Because at the end of the day, this is not only uh, wrong, I think this does uh, diminuate uh, the importance of the Holocaust and anti-Semitism. Because anti-Semitism is such a, an awful thing that to confuse it 
and exploit it uh, against the Palestinians who are struggling for freedom, I think is hypocritical and futile in the end of the day. But on the other hand, let, let me put it this way, and I, I wrote that, uh, I've written that recently, and I think this is terribly important in the United States, because that's where we started, uh, but as well as in Israel and in Europe. I think, uh, and I found that myself over the last uh, 25 years of, of dealings in Europe and the United States, that while some of the uh, worst critics uh, and worst enemies of the Palestinian cause might be Jewish, the best friends of the Palestinian people are Jewish. In fact, there's a majority of Jews now in the United States who support Palestinian rights. And we saw that in the support for the Democratic candidate, uh, Bernie Sanders, we saw a new generation of American Jews who are not in agreement with what's happening in Palestine, and they do not want the Netanyahu government to speak for them. They, they reject the idea that the Netanyahu government could speak for them. So I think the idea of, of, a, of a new movement, a Palestinian Jewish movement, towards freedom, equality, and justice in Palestine is key. Is key because in places where it is terribly important, like Israel and the United States, I think the kind of partnership between Palestinians and Jews is not only the right thing, it is the effective thing. And I think we will only see a real change in Israel-Palestine towards the one-state solution or in the United States toward changing Washington policy towards Israel-Palestine is by this important partnership between Palestinians and Jews, between supporters of Palestine and liberal, progressive, and other Jews who really don't uh, agree with the Netanyahu government, don't want the Netanyahu government to speak for them, and believe in coexistence between Jews and Palestinians between uh, the Mediterranean and the Jordan River. It's very interesting what you say there, Marwan, because, uh, you know, in my time uh, living and working um, at the United Nations, and then for the organization itself, um, and, and, and watching America in that time over the past 15 years, I, I, like you, I've seen a public opinion shift and uh, progressive opinion shift. And Bernie Sanders, as you say, uh, epitomized that within the Democratic Party, substantial changes. And of course, this has led to a demand, not just in um, the Democratic Party, but elsewhere, um, you see a demand for uh, recognition of Palestine. Um, now, should a partial annexation by the annexation government go ahead, do you think that there'll be much broader, um, uh, much more recognition of Palestine as a state by different countries from around the world? And would that worry Netanyahu at all? I mean, presumably it's a good thing that states recognize Palestine, even though it doesn't mean much in practice, but would that worry Netanyahu if he suddenly saw there's going to be a whole tranche of new countries that are going to recognize Palestine as well? Look, I think generally speaking, the record shows that Israel has always acted with impunity, knowing all too well that the United States will support it. I think American support for Israel for the last 50 years has been key for Israel to act at will in Palestine, not caring what Europeans, Arabs, and others might say. But I think Israel does consider itself a sort of a Western country, and it does care for what Europe says, or does, or sanctions. And I think while the United States remains the foremost 
special relationship for Israel, I think the cracks in Europe and elsewhere are very important, and I think they do worry the likes of Netanyahu. And if anything, I think he is in a rush to move in and annex and do whatever he can do in the next several months, because mm. he is afraid that if Trump is not reelected, that an increasing uh, public pressure in Europe, in the United States, as well as here in the, in the Arab world, will increase on Israel. So I think, I think these are important, but I think we shouldn't be, I mean, it would be a wishful thinking for us to think that this is going to happen in a day or two or in a year or two. I think the idea of a real effective international pressure on Israel will take years to build up. For the simple fact, and here again, I'm going to have to lay it uh, you know, at the doorstep of the Palestinian Authority, for the last 25 years of a peace process, the Palestinians have ignored the international solidarity with the Palestinian cause. They have uh, uh, ignored the importance of Europe and of the Arab street and of the non-allied country and so on and so forth. They put all their eggs in the American basket. And what happened? It all backfired and we ended up with Trump basically closing down the Palestinian office, cutting uh, or shutting down the assistance to, to the Palestinian uh, people uh, and, you know, and a, a number of other important decisions taken by Washington. So in the end of the day, not only has uh, the Palestinian Authority lost its bet on Washington, it totally backfired with the Trump administration. And now the next generation of Palestinians and Palestinian leaders will have to make sure that they cannot simply trust leaders, whether they are Arab leaders, European leaders, or American leaders. We, we can see from Black Lives Matter, we can see from uh, the, uh, the, the struggle against apartheid in South Africa, we can see uh, from a number of other uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 regions like Eastern Europe even, and so on and so forth, where people's power does count. And I think the Palestinians have a long way ahead of them and they're going to need the strongest possible solidarity movement with them. Looking at that international solidarity movement, um, clearly that is, uh, that, is a, that is a huge avenue and uh, you know, nobody can actually predict where that, where that goes. Uh, but looking ahead to the November elections in the United States, if, if uh, Biden were to win, that could make a difference. But also looking to perhaps to a post-pandemic world and shifting power structures, um, do you think that in addition to reviving a kind of international Palestine solidarity movement around the world, there's a way that the Palestinians can link up with the, the, a, new, a new global order that's going to emerge in which America may be less important? No, I, I think theoretically this is all, uh, of course, important. I think the global uh, uh, balance of power is shifting and I think it will shift forward in the next decade or two. We are moving into an Asian century. We are moving into the G2, where China is going to become a global power like the United States, and, and so on and so forth. But let me put it this way, uh, Mark. I don't think um, the Russians or the Chinese can be trusted more than the Americans. Um, I really don't think so. And I think at the end of the day, the, the global... Uh, Power play does not play for the weak. And that's why, in the end of the day, unless you do a grassroots solidarity movement and the Palestinians and Jews within Israel-Palestine do not revolt 
and they do not create networks uh, and movements for equality, justice, and freedom, no superpower, no regional power is gonna, are, are gonna come to their aid. If anything, we're going to see, and we've seen that the last few months, uh, people get preoccupied with their own challenges, and China has its own challenges next door, and Russia has as well, and so on and so forth. So they depend uh, on any such powers and simply to say, okay, we forget about America, we're gonna start depending on Russia, as President Abbas did uh, the last several weeks. And what, and what happened? It was Putin who vetoed the possibility that the United Nations take a measure on uh, the annexation. It wasn't even the United States. So you can imagine the cynicism that lies behind some of the calculus that goes into this. Now, in Europe, I think it's slightly different. Uh, and I think in Europe, because of the, everything has to be consensual, we, we're not gonna be able to get some real decisions against Israel because any one country like Poland or or, or Yugoslavia, uh, or, uh, or, or any of the uh, Eastern countries uh, like Hungary and so on and so forth might oppose, might veto uh, any sanctions against Israel. But I think working with grassroots European movements, with British European movements and American European movements, in the end of the day will uh, make a difference. You know, I look at the, um, I look at the American uh, political situation and, and I'm just stunned when I see the Republican Senate majority leader wanting just two weeks after uh, the, the American Intifada uh, broke out that suddenly he wants police reform. You know, <laughs> things happen when, when people power makes itself visible. Uh, and I think this is going to be the long-term play for the Palestinians. And the Palestinians don't, are not necessarily conscious of it and aware of it every day. But let me give you and give your viewers just a, just a kind of a, a you know um, a thirty-five thousand feet uh, uh, view of, of this region. The Palestinians are not just any people uh, or any minority. The Palestinians today are surrounded by some three hundred and fifty million Arabs. So while today some, more, some or a lot of the Arab leaders are you know, quite hypocritical and cynical and, and so on and so forth, but the long term, the, 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 the strategic uh, dimension for the Palestinians in the Arab and Muslim world is huge. And Israel understands that. Israel cannot simply live in a sea of Arabs who do not uh, take kindly to it continuing as colonization and occupation and military control of the Palestinians who are part of the Arab world. So the long term, there is a, an armored power, if you will, in the Palestinian struggle that understands that it has support throughout the world and it has support throughout the Arab public opinion and that in the long term, the, the Mohammed bin Salmans and, uh, and the Sisi's and the other dictators in the Arab world will, cannot stay with us forever. And in the end of the day, Israel is going to have to live within its Arab environments and with its Palestinian neighbors. And that can only be on the basis of equality and justice. Well, you, you and I know that the, um, the Nakba was uh, never filmed in a way that it would be now. The Nakba, if it was happening now, would be, uh, even at a time of pandemic, would be all over international media, would be most certainly all over social media. And uh, as you were saying, in reference to the, the wider Arab world, a young population, an educated population, 
a population that is, is one assumes going to come out of this pandemic um, facing a, an even more unequal world where there are fewer jobs. So the pressures building up must be enormous. And perhaps that, that therein lies some hope. And so really, I just wanted to, to uh, sadly, we're, we're running out of time. So I just wanted to, to come to you finally, Marwan, to ask you this impossible question I ask everybody, which is, you know, looking into your, which you've been doing a bit of, by the way, uh, you know, looking into your crystal ball. Um, how do you think things are going to pan out over the next 20 years? Can there be a peaceful, just solution where peoples of all religions and none can live together? Uh, in a Palestine-Israel state, if it wants to call itself that? Well, I think uh, judging from the past, um, uh, I'm going to give you a, a hint, but I'm not going to tell you why until maybe we meet next time. Why the year probably uh, 2027 is going to be key. Um, but I think generally speaking, I am hopeful, but I'm not optimistic uh, on the short term meaning I can see the, the balances of power in the region. I can see why some Arab leaders are groveling and begging the Trump administration and the Netanyahu government not to do this and to do that because they want to the support against Iran or they want this and that and the other thing. And that's why they are basically betraying the question of Palestine. But I think in the long term, I'm hopeful because I think, uh, you know, the will of the people, and I don't mean that in any populist way, I just mean it, it just be as, as it were that the, the arc of history does bend towards justice and while we are living in some dark moments today and we are really facing an immediate annexation and further Israeli control of the of Palestinian lives but judging just from what happens in in Palestine itself in Israel itself in the Galilee where I started you uh, off I think the Palestinians have the capacity to organize to educate themselves uh, to empower themselves and to struggle uh, towards freedom of justice. It's been going on for a century now, and the Palestinians have not stopped for a day. Just like Israel have not stopped for the day expanding its settlements and its control, the Palestinians have not stopped for a day struggling against the injustice that their homeland has suffered uh, for the last 70 years. And I think they will probably continue to do that because they can see that there is light in the end of the tunnel. And, and some of the details that people don't pay attention to uh, are going to be key in the future. And I'll give you just a couple of examples. One, the maximum distance today between any Palestinian and any Israeli Jew is about six miles. How the heck can you separate two people when they are in such close proximity? When they probably, a lot of them speak the same language, probably have the same semitic origin, if you will, uh, right? They've been living on the same piece of land for the last 70 years or 100 years or 50 years or whatever. A lot of them are, of course, recent immigrants. But the sociology of Israel-Palestine is the same. Those Israeli Jews like Netanyahu who think they can think of themselves separate from the Palestinians are deluding themselves. Israel's past and Israel's present is shaped by the reality in Israel-Palestine, is shaped in part by the Palestinian people, by Israel's relations to the Palestinians. Israel today cannot be understood without understanding Palestine. Palestine cannot be understood today 
without understanding Israel. This common sociology, not necessarily common history or historiography between them, is going to be key in the next, uh, in the next uh, period. The proximity is becoming closer and closer. The history and the sociology and the communication and the relations between them are getting closer and closer. This might end up being a periphery versus center, but in the end of the day, Israel is not going to be able to control the destiny of the Palestinians on the long term. And 2027, you mentioned 2027 as a year to watch. Is, is that when demographics become really unarguable? Or well, we, we have to wait. We have to wait. You're going to have to wait. Oh, maybe, maybe till my next book comes out. <laughs> well, there's a clue, everybody. There's a clue. And uh, we must uh, sadly bring things to an end. And, and I'd, I'd just like to thank, on behalf of all of you who are watching, I'd like to thank Marwan Bishara for joining us uh, today from Doha, Qatar. It's fantastic to see you again, Marwan. We hope you'll come. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you